before we read our scripture, I'm going to describe for you a truly loathsome creature. It's a beast, dead in transgressions and sins, dead but alive. This monster follows the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, and is driven on through life by the ceaseless cravings of body and mind. By nature and by choice, this brute is living in a perilous position under the perpetual wrath of God. What hideous beast could be described by this language? Is there any hope whatsoever for this odious monster? To answer that question, please turn with me to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This was a church dear to Paul's heart. He had spent two years in Ephesus patiently proclaiming the gospel and discipling new believers. A few Jews, but mainly Gentiles, non-Jews, most of whom had been completely immersed in their society with its sexual immorality, idolatry, and magic practices. Paul opens his letter to them by reminding them of all of their rich blessings as believers in Christ. And then we come to chapter 2. Please read along as we look at the, what's really the heart of this letter. Ephesians 2, and we're, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the, the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your precious word. <clears throat> and we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes and hearts uh, that we might see and receive the marvelous things you have for us today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, let's look in some detail at Paul's description of the, the creature I introduced at the beginning of the message. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. This horrible brute is dead, yet walking around. What do we call the walking dead? Zombies. 
This, this is a creature that is physically alive, but spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, violating the command of, of God by thought, word, and deed. Picturing this as a living death fits well with what Paul is trying to get across. This beast is controlled, enslaved in three different ways. First, Paul says, this creature walks according to the course of this world. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, this world is fundamentally and systematically opposed to God. You know, at our present time in the history of the United States, the world tells us that those who uphold the Bible's standards are what? on the wrong side of history. A candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia is a champion of abortion on demand for any reason or no reason up to the moment of birth. What does he call this unfettered access to abortion? Reproductive justice. And this man is a Baptist pastor. Many people walk according to the course of the world in much less shocking ways, such as letting the world tell us what we need to have in order to have a happy and fulfilled life. This same beast serves the prince of the power of the air, another name for Satan or the devil. Many people laugh at the ideal, at the idea of a supernatural being of unimaginable evil. The consistent testimony of the Bible is that everyone who's not serving God through Jesus Christ is serving the dark Lord. Paul is not saying that those he's describing are actually possessed by Satan or even knowingly, willingly serving the evil one. Paul is merely saying that these creatures, the walking dead, are open, wide open to Satan's subtle temptations and often yield, as Eve yielded when tempted by Satan in the garden. I mean, think of all of those people tempted by money, power, fame, sensual pleasures. All those who are claiming to be exercising their freedom by violating God's law. They're, they're all actually unwittingly following Satan. That phrase sons of disobedience simply means those whose lives are being lived in opposition to God. Paul says that these same brutes live in the lusts of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And now we get the biggest hint yet of who these creatures are. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Wait! Who has Paul been describing? Who is this hideous beast? Just look in a mirror. Paul says that he is describing what all those in Ephesus were like before trusting in Christ Jesus. And he's not just describing the Gentiles of Ephesus with their pagan practices. He includes himself an upstanding Jew, when he says, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. And what did that look like? 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Does Paul mean that those he's describing lived as wickedly as they possibly could, violating every one of the Ten Commandments and then some extras thrown in? No. The Apostle Paul says indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul is talking about our inner motivations that then flow out into actions. God knows our thoughts as well as our words and actions. Jesus says that those with anger in their hearts are committing mental murder, and those with lust in their hearts are committing mental adultery. Would you agree with me that the greatest sin would be a violation of the greatest commandment? What is that commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Could any of us claim to love either God or our neighbor to that degree? No, not a one of us. Paul is describing every single human being without Christ. And Paul puts the nail in the coffin when he says, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The rest of whom? The rest of humanity. The entire human race enters the world with a bent toward sin. And it doesn't take long until that shows us actual open rebellion against God. Are you comfortable? Are you uncomfortable that Paul uses such a broad brush to paint the entire human race? I mean, certainly there's got to be some difference between a, a, a brutal murderer on death row in Parchman and the child who deliberately digs in and disobeys you. I mean, there's got to be some difference between your sweet, kind, moral neighbor who rejects the gospel and a guy running a human trafficking ring. <clears throat> My friends, we're all guilty of sin. High treason against God, the king of the universe. There may be a difference in degree, but there's no difference in the most important way. Every single rebel is living under the wrath of God. Oh my goodness, it's, it's a frightening picture. And more people need to be frightened, need to be terrified at their hopeless and helpless condition. It, it's only when we realize our peril that we seek to be delivered from this terrible condition, this living death. So how can these terrible beasts, how can we be delivered from God's wrath? Oh, that's when we come to two of the sweetest words in the entire Bible. But God. But God. Our situation is completely hopeless unless God intervenes. The, the beautiful, almost unbelievable truth is that God does intervene to save us from this living death. 
These next verses from verse 4 to 7 take us into the tender heart of God. I mean, look at the words used to, to describe God in this section. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. Oh, what wonderful news. Even when we were in open rebellion against him, God set his affection on us who believe in Christ. I mean, how is that possible? How could God love such wicked rebels, such vile creatures? There's no good answer to that question. It's not because there was anything attractive in us. His love was directed toward us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We'll see later that what God actually had us, that God actually had us in mind even before he created the world. How is that possible? How is it possible for God to extend mercy, love, grace, kindness to those who are deserving of his wrath, those in open rebellion against his rule? He does it because of Jesus Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the original, original language of the New Testament, Paul uses three words, all of which begin with S-Y-N, meaning together with. When God works in our lives, we experience spiritually what Jesus experienced physically. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he rose on the third day, that he ascended back to heaven where he is at this moment seated at the right hand of God the Father. Paul says that when we embrace Jesus Christ by faith, we follow the same path in a spiritual sense. We were dead in our trespasses, the walking dead, zombies. <laughs> by the way, when I first preached from the book of Ephesians in my first church out of seminary, I used this term zombies to speak of unbelievers. Someone came to me later to tell me that some folks had been offended by the use of that term to describe unbelievers. I, I didn't apologize. That's exactly the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting for us until someone sees the full horror of what it means to be outside of Christ, he is ne never going to seek for refuge. She's never going to seek for refuge, for rescue, until we're gripped at the peril that we, we all live in. Without Christ, we'll never appreciate the full extent of God's mercy, love, grace, kindness, we were dead in trespasses. But God, but God, but God made us alive together with Christ. 
Just as Jesus spoke and raised Lazarus to life from physical death, God speaks spiritual life into our dead souls. It's such a powerful truth that Paul interrupts his own thoughts to exclaim, by grace you have been saved. More than that, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that all of the benefits of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension at rule and rule at God the Father's right hand are ours the moment we believe and for all eternity. I mean, can, can you even begin to take in the glory and wonder of this reality? I mean, how can it be that these same simple truths still thrill me as they did almost 50 years ago when I first saw the wonder of the gospel, when I first grasped what Christ did for me, even though I had used his precious name as a curse word and bowed down to lifeless images in India. It's because there's no other truth that is as magnificent as the truth that we are seeing and savoring today. The Apostle Paul piles up words to describe God's intentions toward us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God was not just merciful, he was rich in mercy toward us. It was a great love with which he loves us. And his grace, we're talking about the surpassing riches of his grace. Is your heart at all cold to these marvelous truths? May God ravish your heart and my heart again with the wonder, the glory of redeeming grace. I love the quote from the late Pastor Jack Miller. Cheer up! <laughs> you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. I love the, the New Getty hymn where the chorus goes, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Once God does his great miracle of regeneration in our hearts and minds, we become trophies of God's grace. It's thrilling uh, today to read the testimony of, his, of a, an Islamic terrorist who's now a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. It, it's stirring to hear the testimony of a prodigal son or daughter who's been transformed by God's grace. It's wonderful when a young child receives Jesus Christ as Savior and King. But do you realize that Paul is saying even more than that? Nearly every high school or college has a, a case full of trophies. Many parents have a shrine at home for their children with, with every trophy they've ever received on display. 
Well, God has a trophy case, and we're the trophies. For all eternity, we are going to be living proof for all to see as we demonstrate with our lives the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You and I are not going to receive the glory for being children of God. It's God who will, re will receive the eternal praise for delivering hundreds of millions of the walking dead, wicked traitors from their hopeless, helpless condition. Through endless ages, our redeemed lives will serve as eloquent testimonies of the richest, richness of God's mercy toward us in Christ, the greatness of the love he showered on us, the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I hope you see, as we work through this passage in Ephesians 2, that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the living dead, enslaved by the world, the devil and the flesh, wrath of God hanging over their heads. And then there are those united to God's Son by faith, made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, seated even now in heaven with Christ, trophies of God's grace. All of mankind is divided into these two categories. You can search throughout the Bible and you will never find a third kind of person, someone who's pretty good and who needs just a little boost from God to make it to heaven. John is often called the apostle of love. Nearly every one of us has heard and many of us have memorized John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, that same apostle of love wrote John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We can't escape this stark contrast. You are either one of the walking dead or someone united to Jesus Christ by faith who shares in Christ's glorious victory over death and all the forces of evil. Have you come to the place where you have a clear grip on the nature of grace? I have to ask the question because it's been my experience that many people misunderstand the idea of grace in one way or another. Let's, let's see how the Apostle Paul guards that notion of grace from misunderstanding. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. So you see, Paul tells us what great it, grace is and what it isn't. Grace is completely a gift of God. Really, Paul has been telling us right along what grace is. Grace is God setting his mercy, love, kindness on us when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, 
when Paul is saying it is the gift of God. Is, what's he talking about? Is he talking about grace or faith or salvation? Which is it? Which is the gift of God? The answer is yes. All of the above. That, that whole process of saving us from our sin and condemnation we each richly deserve comes to us totally as a gift. In case there's any misunderstanding, Paul says it the opposite way around, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, my friends, no religion can save you or me from God's wrath. No one is saved by being a Hindu, a Muslim, or a Buddhist. No one is saved by being a Catholic. And no one is saved by being a Baptist. Yes, what you believe is important, but without faith, what you believe cannot save you. People are not saved by religion. They are saved by a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul has shown, those without the Lord Jesus Christ are dead. A dead man, a dead woman can do nothing for him or herself. In order to come alive again, a dead man or a dead woman must be given a gift. Life. All we can earn is death. Life must be given as a gift of God. And the only source of life in the whole universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. God saves us, not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. Grace and works as reasons for salvation are totally opposed. If salvation comes to you or me, it is 100% the work of God's grace. And if it's 100% God's grace, it's 0% the result of works. Listen, if even one-tenth of one percent of my salvation is because of good works, grace would no longer be grace. Why? Because grace, by definition, is God's unmerited favor. If you merited God's favor in any way, it would no longer be grace. This is the very core of the Christian faith. Some of you have been following the story of my journey to faith 50 years ago. I've had contact with some of those who were caught up in Eastern religions with me. As far as I know, there's not a single one except myself who's become a follower of Jesus Christ, who has been granted new life in his name. Why is that? Was it because I was a more sincere seeker than they were? Was it because I had more wisdom and insight than they did? No, no, no. A hundred times no. Then why? Only because of God's grace. You see, if I contributed even a fraction of a percent to my salvation, then I'd have something to boast about. There's something about me or what I did that attracted God's attention so that he bestowed his mercy, his grace, 
his love on me. No, it was all of grace. He never explains why he chooses to grant his grace to one and not to another. You can ask all you want. The only answer God is going to give you is because of the great love with which I loved you. We moved to Mississippi from Vermont, the most secular state in the Union. Few people in Vermont are going to claim to be Christians if they're not. There are church buildings all over Vermont, you know, those beautiful white New England churches. But few house vibrant churches. Many are closed. There are craft shops and personal homes. It's so different down here. If you're a typical Southerner, you most likely grew up going to church and Sunday school on a regular basis. Since moving here nearly seven years ago, it's been our observation that, our, that there are many who grew up in the church, but today show no sign of the transformation the Apostle Paul is describing here. They may be good, kind folk who are polite, friendly, who make good neighbors, but who don't seem to display the work of the life of Christ within. Flannery O'Connor was a Southerner to the core. She was a keen observer of her fellow Southerners. She said something almost 60 years ago that I believe is just as true today. She said, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. Oh, an amazingly perceptive observation and critical distinction. How about you? Is your life Christ-centered or merely Christ-haunted? Even if you're a good church-going person, kind, generous, outwardly moral, not, none of that counts. Anything toward forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Have you experienced life through the transforming power of God's lavish grace given in response to genuine faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been made alive with Christ or are you still dead in your trespasses and sins? Jesus Christ accomplished all that is needed to be done to rescue you from your living death. He came from heaven to be born of a virgin, God in human flesh. He lived a perfect life and then died on a cross as a common criminal. He died not for his own sins, he had none. He died in place of those who deserve death, you and me. After three days, he rose again, defeating Satan and conquering death for all time. He ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Oh, I'm, I am pleading with you today to reach out to Jesus Christ by faith, confessing your sin and trusting in what he accomplished for you. Experience life rather than a living death. Experience his rich mercy, his lavish love, the surpassing 
riches of his grace instead of the wrath that hangs over you apart from Jesus Christ. If our works count nothing for our salvation, is there no place then for good works in our life at all? Once we were saved, are we just meant to, to coast through life until we die or Jesus comes again? No, the Bible pictures the Christian life is full of God-given, God-empowered activity. Those through the centuries who preached and taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have had to guard against the accusation that we are telling people that they can be saved and then live their lives however they want. The great reformer Martin Luther wrote, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. John Calvin made the same point when he wrote, it is therefore faith alone that justifies, and yet the faith that justifies is not alone. A living faith always shows itself in good works. And isn't that exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is making in this letter? He wrote, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have been saved for a particular purpose. God has plans to use us. He has in his mind certain good works which he plans for us to carry out in his name. Good works are not the cause of our salvation. They are the result of that salvation. What should happen when God pours his grace into your life? First glory should go to God. Second, service should be rendered to God. And the third result of God's grace in your life and mine should be genuine humility. I mean, if, if, if I grasp the grace of God, if you grasp the grace of God, we understand that our privileged position in Christ comes only through God's intervention into our lives. I was literally bound for hell without Christ. You were too. God saved me in spite of who I was. That leads to true Christian humility. Oh, my friends, we're, we're nearly at the end of an extremely challenging year. All of us have experienced the strain of living this pandemic for over nine months now. And with no real end in sight. Some of us have experienced the fallout from COVID-19 more than others. I mean, some of you have had massive challenges and pressures on top of the virus. It, it's been a rough year. But I believe that God has used the pressures in our lives to show us what is most important in life. Those things that come through us through the grace of Christ, things that can never be taken away 
from us by anything without outside distractions. Many of us have had to face up to sinful attitudes in our hearts, whether it's a sense of entitlement, fear, anxiety, selfishness. I've, I've seen and had to confess all of them in my heart. Many of the ways that we might have served one another and to do good works have been shut off. So we've had to learn how to encourage one another by texts, phone, email, Zoom. I hope that many of us have been much more free with our giving. Nearly every Christian ministry has felt the pinch in reduced giving because of the pandemic. Yet the needs presented to these ministries have increased dramatically due to sickness and job loss. The Harvest family was so generous to provide for the needs that the elders brought to our attention. But friends, the needs are massive. Whether you're talking about Gateway or Salvation Army or Samaritan's Purse or any of the other good gospel-centered ministries. Where might God be prompting us, you and me, to be even more generous? You know, I think we often complicate trying to figure out what these good works are that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Could it be that we often miss the work that's right before our eyes because we're thinking about some future work that we're preparing for. I think about a particular time when I was in seminary, something that I'm not proud of. I was working part-time and carrying nearly a full load. I had a, a Hebrew prof who was a great guy, a wonderful Christian, but who piled on massive amounts of work. I had a huge paper or test due on a Monday, and I knew that I just had to have the entire weekend free to work on it. I also knew that a fellow student was planning on moving that weekend. I'm ashamed to tell you this. I deliberately hid from that brother in Christ for fear that he'd ask me to help with the move. I mean, which was more important at the time? That the good work that was right there at hand or this long-term goal? I'm convinced that I made the wrong decision, a selfish decision. And believe me, it wasn't the first time or the last time that I've made that wrong decision. Through Christ, you and I have been freed from our shackles. We've been liberated from the tyranny of the world, the devil, and the flesh. We've been set free to serve the living God with wholehearted joy. You and I have received mercy, love, grace, kindness in massive quantities from God and continue to do so. It's not wrong to have grand plans. But where might God be calling you and me to do some of those things that are right close at hand? 
Who do you know who could really use an encouraging phone call, text, email? Who do you know who needs to know that you are praying for them in their difficult situation, even if you can't be there physically with them? Let's ask God to open our eyes and hearts to the needs around us and then to act to meet them in Jesus' name. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what an astounding passage of Scripture this is. A passage of Scripture which gets to the, the very heart of the Gospel. Uh, a, a, a passage of Scripture which doesn't hold back in painting the terrible condition uh, we are or were in without Jesus Christ. The glory of the, the salvation that you have provided in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the ways that you have given meaning and purpose to our lives uh, as born-again children in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that uh, you would fill our hearts, if we've been Christians for a while like I have, with, the, with fresh wonder at the glory of the salvation that has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you tenderize our hearts to those who are still lost in trespasses and sins, living under your wrath, uh, Lord, help us to have compassion and to share the gospel whenever we're able. And Father, help us to live as trophies of your grace uh, that our lives would uh, be full of good works, not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because we've received your favor. And I pray, Father, that you would show me that you'd show us those things which are ri just right close at hand and uh, give us uh, the, give us your grace to be able to do those things uh, with joy, thankful for being able to be used by you for your service. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.